Hi, welcome to our broadcast. My name is Dr. James Simmons. I am a board certified nurse practitioner and founder of Ask the NP. And I want to welcome all of you to be here. Of course, as a reminder, the information provided during this event is for informational purposes only. For any medical questions, please reach out to your primary care provider or other health professional. I also want to give a little bit of a, a disclaimer here that we're going to be talking about some, some pretty sensitive and pretty personal topics that may be upsetting for some folks. Um, so uh, please know that that will happen, but these are going to be real and, and fantastic conversations and we hope helpful. Um, if at any time you need help with anything, there are always Providence resources at providence.org, of course, as well as 1-800-273-TALK is the National Suicide Lifeline. If you need help or you need help helping someone, those resources are always available to you. So joining me for this uh, conversation is uh, Dr. Arpan Wagre, Chief Medical Officer, Behavioral Medicine at Providence, and Josh Cutler, Senior Clinical Manager and Psychotherapist at Providence and Swedish. Hello, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Hi, James. Hey, James. Hello, hello. Um, so first off, for the folks who um, don't know you or don't know what you do, just let everyone watching what your roles are. Josh, let's start with you. Yeah, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker uh, based in Seattle, and um, I'm trained as a psychotherapist, and in the last couple of years have been really focusing my work on taking care of our healthcare providers who are working on the front lines, so have had a lot of um, doctors and nurses and administrative staff uh, who've been seeing me over telehealth for counseling. And then I also um, have been running a team that we built um, that does that work as well. So I'm that's the management part of my title and role. Um, and so uh, started my work in our health system at Swedish and have continued that work uh, at Providence and have worked really closely with Dr. Wagre and have been uh, really lucky to have been able to bring some of his vision to life. Excellent. Thank you, Josh. Dr. Wadgray? Well, thank you so much, James. And uh, this is really exciting for me to be um, be able to partner with my friend over here, Josh Cutler, whom I've known for many years, and, and have a real conversation. So I serve uh, as Chief Medical Officer for Behavioral Medicine at Providence. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist by training. And uh, part of the role at the system is to to try to do three big things. I mean, we, we, we want to make sure that um, we have the best place to, we, you know, we have access to mental health resources and support for all our caregivers, 120,000 caregivers and their dependents. Second, our day job, taking care of our patients. So if people do trust us with their care, that we always, always show up for them and, and meet their needs as a whole person, mind, body, spirit with no wrong door. And we also um, have a responsibility towards our communities and making sure that we're focusing on improving the mental health and well-being of our communities and the area of focus uh, for, for us is uh, through the Work to Be Well program that, that Dr. Henderson leads and promoting youth mental health and resilience. So, so that um, is the body of work across our seven states with multidisciplinary team of awesome people that I'm uh, privileged to be a part of. Neither, neither of you are, are very busy. Or are very involved. Yeah, neither neither of you have much going on at all. <laughs> it's, very, it's very clear. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Wagre, you you mentioned trust, and uh, I think that's a that's a, a hugely key component of having difficult conversations about mental health in general, but in particular about suicide. And uh, that that may be a key, but if you could share with us some of the other keys about how you might 
start or initiate a conversation with someone who you think might be experiencing suicidal thoughts? Well, thanks, James. That's a that's a beautiful question. And um, before I getting get get into trying to answer that and give you some examples, I had a, maybe two comments that I wanted to share. First, just the importance of starting a conversation. So when when people are in that emotional anguish and that that extreme distress externally, you know, you might not be able to pick up on that. And I think being able to start a conversation and have a real conversation can save a life. I think just I want to underscore the importance of this. I know it's difficult, but it, it can save a life. And the second thing I want to, you know, um, there's this myth uh, that that asking about suicidality might actually plant a suicidal thought in somebody's mind. And I want to dispel that myth before we even get into the conversation. That is not true. That has been researched. And, and asking the question actually might save a life, not plant the suicide, might, might, might not plant suicidal thoughts. So having said that, I think this is really tough, right? What you need to do is to be able to create a safe space. Um, I would say, you know, genuinely being present and listening to people with empathy is probably one of the most important things that we can do to start a conversation. Uh, what I have found helpful is in some way or form to normalize the conversations. Uh, if you would like to share about yourself, sometimes that creates mutuality and, and makes it easier for people to talk about some very difficult topics. Um, I have always tried to use things like, you know, using I statements. I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed that you seem this way and I want to be able to help you. And that really helps, you know, it, it avoids people becoming defensive and, and you also want to be very, very careful that you're validating people's emotions. You're asking open-ended questions. Direct questions are important. Uh, you know, you seem this way. I'm very concerned that you might, you know, you're, I'm very concerned about you. Are you having thoughts about harming yourself? And, and that allows for a safe space to start a conversation. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that you don't want to get into a place where you're analyzing and trying to fix the problems. When you're starting the conversation, you want to create a safe space. Uh, so those are some things that that um, that have worked when I've tried to start these conversations, and I hope that that helps our listeners. Absolutely, I I, I love. I was just taking notes while you were doing this, just to sort of recap. Uh, you know, creating a safe space, starting with I statements, um, being direct. I, I think this is one of the most important you know aspects about this, at least in my experience, um, is that you. This is not a place for us to use our corporate speak. Yes. Right. This is not, this is not a place for us to sort of PR our way around the issue. You know, you you have to be direct, even if you think it's going to make the person angry, and even if the person that you're talking to does get angry, um, that's that's okay. It's better to have an angry friend than one friend that's not around, right, or or loved one. So um, thank you, thank you so much for for sharing that, um, Josh. I you you recently published a, a memoir. Um, sort of on your personal reflections as a psychotherapist. Um, but also, Josh, you have a really sort of compelling personal story that I really think everyone, you know, listening to would, would benefit from. And, and I, I sort of just want to create a safe space here. And using I statements, I will directly ask you <laughs> if you would like to share, um, you know, some of your, your personal journey that I think could be really, really helpful for the folks watching. Yeah, uh, so um, my book is called The Day Hospital, and my f the first edition actually I wrote um, 
before COVID and I published it anonymously. I wasn't ready to put my name on it and I blacked some parts out of it. Um, but I got to the point where I shared it with um, some people and got some good feedback and just decided that I wanted to write a second edition with my name on it. And I added some additional experiences of what it was like to work as a therapist during COVID uh, with healthcare providers. Uh, but the premise of the book, um, where it starts is at the day hospital where I um, actually had a little bit of a breakdown myself um, a couple years ago and ended up going into a psychiatric day hospital program. And it really helped me a lot. And um, I was really struggling with depression, uh, which is something I've actually struggled with for most of my adult life. Um, it wasn't a new thing, um, but it was something that I felt like I was managing pretty well until I wasn't. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I was able to um, luckily be, you know, surrounded by a good group of professionals and really supportive colleagues and, um, and family and, um, and also was able to then get into this program where I got some help. And then, so the book is about my experience, both in that program and then, um, reflecting on, uh, my life kind of leading up to that. And then after that, both, um, weaving together stories of working as a, professional um, and also as uh, a patient. So it's been a really interesting journey that's really been kind of two parallel paths as far as what people have experienced. Um, and I'm trying to be at a place right now where I'm integrating some of this, um, some of these life experiences a little bit more in my story and being a little bit more open uh, because the reality is it's all of who I am. Um, and some people that know me actually pretty well have read this book and they were like, wow, I had no idea that this is some of the stuff that um, you've been through. And so um, it's been definitely kind of a healing journey for me to be a little more vulnerable. Um, I wouldn't just suggest anybody come out of mental health treatment. You don't have to suddenly tell everybody about it. It's been a, a long-term process for me. Um, and there's certainly not, I, you know, certainly held some things back, but um, I'm really glad to be able to share this. And um, I really appreciate how uh, supportive Dr. Wagre has been of this journey. He's, he wrote a nice um, praise for it in the front of the book. And um, mm -hmm. there's, he actually appears a couple times in the book as being a supportive mentor, uh, mentor during that process. So, Thank you. Josh, for, for sharing that. Uh, I know that that it seems so easy for you to share that right now, by the way, um, us being on the on the outside looking at you. But I know that that was probably very difficult um, and has taken a lot to, to get up to that, to share that publicly. So so thank you. You, you mentioned um, people who knew you really well didn't even realize some things were going on. And I think that's really, really common, um, including Dr. Wagre, who, if I understand, was was your boss essentially, right? And how how does that how did that dynamic work, and how could that be helpful for those watching when you might need help, and it the help you might need may impact your ability to continue doing your job, but it's also really important for you to have that conversation with a, a superior. Um, and can can you talk about that situation a little bit? Yeah, and um, and I would say yeah. Dr. Wagre is amazing and I've loved working with him. And um, and in this instance, you know, I had applied to HR to get some time off because um, I needed that to go to this program. And I was kind of thinking, should I mention this to anybody? I didn't have to. Um, and that's also something that's totally, you're right. I want to make that clear. If you don't feel comfortable talking with your boss about this stuff, you don't have to. But, um, but he just had gotten notice that I was taking some time off and wanted to just was asking how I was doing. 
and I just decided, you know what? I trust this guy, um, and I'm going to tell him what's really going on. And and that is the first time I'd ever had that candid of a conversation with a supervisor about um, my mental health. And my supervisor happened to be a psychiatrist at that moment, um, which was kind of an interesting twist. Um, sure. And so, um, and he was overwhelmingly supportive. I was a little bit terrified because I'd been definitely a rising star in his group. And we were in the middle of a huge project that I didn't want to drop the ball on, but it was like, I've got to take some time off um, and take care of myself. And, and he made that clear that that was the first priority for me and my family. So um, I'm forever grateful for that. Josh, you're just so kind. Um... James, you picked up on that. You, you you picked up on it so well. You know how how hard it must be for someone like Josh to share a story, and yet he's doing it with so much ease at this time. Uh, that takes a lot of courage. And you know, for for our listeners who don't know the work that Josh was doing, um, he was single-handedly building a program for all Providence caregivers to help them at some of their darkest hours. Um, a behavioral health concierge service that really met the needs of any of our caregivers or their dependents. And, uh, you know, it was one of the most successful programs that we've launched and, and stories were just so powerful of how people were able to get help. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as a provider who's, who's helping and supporting people during some of their darkest hours, hearing all the pain and the trauma that people are going through, um, you know, you can just imagine how hard that is. You're a container, you're holding everything, but you're all, we're human too. And, and so I think being able to, you know, to take care of yourself and be able to say that I'm going to, I'm going to model self-care. I'm going I'm to take care of myself first was, was a very important step. And I'm, I'm also so happy that Josh is, um, you know, at a place where he's able to share this with, with people. I can't emphasize the importance of that. You know, there, there are so many people who are listening right now we're struggling and and you know the stigma just prevents you from having a real conversation and you don't need to be struggling you don't need to be hiding it's just you know please 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 be able to get help for yourself it, and that stigma is so incredibly powerful right it, it not only from a you know we think about sort of stigma in a larger sense right like at this you know gestalt level of society has this stigma but it really often comes down to a personal um stigma that we have ourselves you know and and judging ourselves and i i josh uh, i i kind of want to i want to highlight a little bit and, and see maybe if you can share with us just a little bit about the juxtaposition between what may what was probably happening in your mind between developing this program for caregivers who need mental health support and knowing finally realizing you needed mental health support yourself. Uh, how, you know, I think this is probably something that's that's unique to you, but that lots of other people realize I, I have to keep working to pay the bills and I got to take the kids to soccer practice and I got to, we have to be safe from COVID and we have to do all these things and I have to blah, blah, blah and fix the house and, and all these other things. And also like, if I do one more thing, that's it, I'm done. I'm going to crack. And, and that's a very, while your situation is unique, I think it's relatable to a lot of folks if you wouldn't mind expanding on that a little bit yeah and i would say i'm pretty good at compartmentalizing maybe too good i think us healthcare providers we're pretty good at you know walking into the clinic or if we're doing virtual turning on the virtual screen and just somehow all that stuff that's going on for us we just managed to shove to the background and we show up with this professional persona and i've been doing that for a long time and i can do it pretty well um, but there comes to a point where 
that's no longer sustainable. Um, and I'm really passionate right now, and I know Dr. Wagre is as well, about creating more upstream solutions so people don't get to the point of a total breakdown. And, and the pressures right now that everyone is experiencing on top of just regular life pressures, I mean, I've been working in mental health for a long time. We've always been pretty busy <laughs> and people, you know, humans have challenges, um, but the added pressure of this shared trauma and experience of COVID has just put so many people over the top. Um, and some of our past coping skills and mechanisms and routines have just gone out the window. And, mm -hmm. and so making sure that we're, you know, upstream, making sure to stay connected with friends, stay connected to our health and our bodies and sleep and potentially reaching out for, you know, mental health help, which can start with a conversation with your primary care doctor. We have across the Providence system, a lot of behavioral health supports just right within primary care. You don't necessarily need to call a therapist. Um, we know that that's a hard system, the specialty mental health system to access. Um, but starting that conversation, even if you're there for something else, you're there for a COVID test, mentioning to your doctor, hey, I'm having some of these other concerns. And um, they're well-trained to be able to support you with that. And, and that's something that Providence continues to work on. Um, and so, um, so yeah, just um, checking in with yourself when you're feeling like, yeah, on the outside, I'm smiling and I'm going. And I mean, I had that weekend. My daughter had two soccer games back to back. Like I was like that, this was a weekend. And then we had all this other stuff to do and cleaning the house. And, you know, I've got two kids and, and it was just like, and I found myself, this is um, a, a funny personal anecdote, but I couldn't sleep one night. And we have a minivan that's just totally trashed family minivan. The floor is just covered with family detritus. If you've got uh -huh. kids, you know, but I found this, these videos of this guy like detailing minivans. And I swear to God, I like watched this in the middle of the night for, for a while. It was like really relaxing uh -huh. <laughs> and it was just like <laughs> cathartic of, uh, wow, you can get a family minivan clean. And, um, and so, you know, whatever it is, find, find something that can help you relax. Um, and I'm not quite ready to take on my own van, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but living, uh, through vicariously helped. Absolutely. You know, I, I think you, you mentioned upstream quite a bit. And I think for the, you know, providers watching and really everyone watching, but, you know, there's been some fantastic work with the, you know, caregiver, caregiver mental health network and, and kind of what's going on with that. And I know some folks are, it's, I would like to say common knowledge within the organization, but I think there are a lot of individuals who maybe not fully understand the breadth of the program and what it's able to offer and how many people are accessing it and what's that available. Dr. Wagre, I don't know if you can expand on that a little bit for those watching. Sure, um, maybe I'll start with, you know, how we approached uh, mental health and uh, well-being services for our own. We, you know, it was March of 2020 uh, when it was about one and a half months after we had admitted the first COVID positive patient to um, our ministry up in Everett. And um, really trying to think like, how do we create a system where if any of our caregivers want access to mental health services, that there's seamless access available based on their needs and preference. I mean, I think you, you, you call that out the upstream, like it doesn't mean that everybody needs to speak with a therapist, but um, if I want self-help resources, how do I find them? So oh, literally over a weekend with our digital innovation group, Josh and myself, we created a stress meter that's been used 30,000 times. Um, and it's been one of, one of the more powerful resources. So 
for example, if people want self-help resources, we have a partnership with folks from UC Berkeley. They click on you know this credible mind thing, and you can go and say, well, you, rather than being overwhelmed or underwhelmed by a simple Google search, you kind of say, I want help with say parenting during the pandemic, and my preferred medium of learning is say a podcast. You put those filters in, just like a, you know a Yelp-like five-star rating based on what providers say. You get good curated content, and so that was one thing to. Um, telespiritual health we found was something that people really uh, you know were finding helpful or, or clicking on we found that the most commonly viewed topic at that point in time was compassion fatigue um, you know and, and I can see how that might be coming back again with the Delta surge and all those who are caring for people who are not getting vaccinated and everything else that goes with it and uh, so so we have that and then the concierge right all this itself can be overwhelming I want to phone a friend option and that's where it comes in Mr. Cutler with all his amazing services. And this, we had 10,000 visits to this. So it just gives you a sense of how much. And then, and then on the other side, we recognize that help-seeking behavior doesn't come naturally to people in healthcare. So while this was helpful for the small subset of people who raised their hands and got help, then we had to make sure that we're putting in place a proactive approach. So this is where we partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And we launched a program called My Mental Health Matters in which you have an annual mental health checkup. And I think, you know, there's, it's very early, it's been about six weeks or so since we've been uh, doing this. And we found some really um, concerning statistics. We've found some really concerning numbers there. So about 1,450 of our caregivers took this assessment and 61% um, of them were in tier one, that is extreme emotional distress and, and at risk for suicide. And there were 98 caregivers who were describing active suicidal thoughts. So we're, and every one of them was responded to with a personal, personal message from a therapist. And so hopefully intercepted and provided and sent on a different path so they get help. But that's the, the level of stress and suffering that, that those in healthcare are dealing with. Um, so yeah. And, I mean, that's fantastic work. The, the statistics you just gave, the, the numbers you gave are, are um, as a healthcare provider, I guess I have to say not as sh not that shocking once I sort of step back, but being able to have a tool like this that identified 98 individuals who were actively having suicidal thoughts, you know, what I think it, it, this helps us to sort of open up this conversation a little bit about, you know, what are, what are some misconceptions for those 98 individuals and other individuals who are, are experiencing suicidal thoughts in that moment? I mean, I, I think people who have never um, had suicide happen in their family or with loved ones or whatever may not understand sometimes the thinking and the mentality that's going on with someone who is actively suicidal caregiver or not. Yeah. You know, you, you raise such a good point. And, and I was thinking, I was reminded of a, of, a, of a story shared by David Cummington, one of the zero suicide experts. Um, and he, he describes this instance where, so I want you to stay with me for a second and try to visualize this, right? When you're thinking about people who are suicidal, because we talk about suicide as a choice. Uh, we, we used to for you know many years up until recently, and some still do say, this person died by a heart attack, but that person committed suicide, mm -hmm. right? Now the field has moved away from using the words like committed, but I, I just want you to think about this for a second. Say you're, you're, you're hanging from a cliff, right? You're hanging from a cliff and below you have all these rocks that if you let go, you know you're gonna die right? You're hanging on and you're hanging on with dear life. You don't want to let go. You don't want to let go, but you're after a while, gravity, fatigue, 
you know, just the pain starts getting the better of you. You're, you're hurting and you're in such distress that you know death is there and you just let, you let go. And, and that's what people have described as that emotional anguish and pain before you go to that step of taking, of, of, of ending your life by suicide. And I don't think many people can relate and understand how serious this can be. And, and so I wanted to call that out. And I think that story to me is one that, that really, you know, paints a picture because people can relate with physical pain. They can see that, right? If you have a broken arm, you know, people sympathize with you. They empathize in a different way. But if you're very severely depressed, many people just can't see that. They can't see that anguish and pain. And that makes the suffering even harder for someone who's in that situation. Absolutely. I think there's so much that we, you know, how do, how do I say this? It's not that mental health is new, the way that we are addressing it and the way that we are, are relating to mental health as a part of our overall, you know, mind, body, spiritual health is, is so new and people, you're right, can relate to a broken ankle. They can, it's difficult for them to relate to, you know, uh, emotional pain, mental health pain, but that analogy was, was great of someone hanging on and then it just becomes overwhelming, you know, um, at some point. And I, we, we have some of the resources going across the bottom here. I want to say this uh, out loud. It's one of my favorite resources in the world. 1-800-273-TALK or 8255 is this National Suicide Lifeline. As well, the crisis text line, you just text HOME to 741741. I'm a texter. A lot of people are texters and they prefer an interaction that way. Um, but specifically in, we've talked kind of about mental health in general, but Josh, Josh, in particular, individuals who may be at that moment, you've identified as suicidal, there's, there's a plan and, 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 and many things that need to occur to, to intervene. Can you discuss sort of what Providence resources are for that and, and how that works, particularly for caregivers? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, if someone is has a plan that they're actively planning to carry out, Calling 911 or going to the emergency room is is really your um, most important next step. Um, but if if it's not quite to that point, um, and somebody, I mean, having some fleeting thoughts of suicide is actually relatively common. I talk with a lot of patients about it, and they're far from being at a dangerous place. But you want to make sure and get those people help as well before they get to a, to a worse place. Um, the recommended intervention is to make a safety plan and you can do that with your primary care doctor if you end up going to the emergency room but you don't go on for further care they're going to work on setting up a safety plan with you which is going to include people you can call um, if you're distressed and you're thinking about hurting yourself also potentially some um, exercises or strategies you might use to help calm yourself down um, and some uh, additional numbers you can call, like some of the ones that we're putting across the bottom of the screen. Um, but if you're um, concerned about somebody that's in this place, whether um, it's a friend or it's a patient that you're seeing, keeping in close touch and letting them know how much you care about them and that they're not a burden and that's not a problem um, and keeping just a consistent schedule of, hey, we're gonna talk tomorrow at this time um, is, is just really important to know that you're out there and you're thinking about them and, um, and making sure that, again, there's a, a safety plan to, um, rather than contracting and making them promise to never do anything. Um, that doesn't necessarily work. We, what we want is to 
help people to feel that they have a number of resources if they get to that dark place. You, you brought up, you know, contracts used to be popular back in the day and you brought up not doing contracts. Dr. Wagre, are there, you know, in just the brief sort of 90 seconds we have left, other things that folks should not do in a situation like that? You two are both highly, highly trained individuals who this comes second nature, but for even other caregivers or people watching who are saying, okay, there's someone in my life who is suicidal, what are what is something that they should not do in, in that scenario when they're trying to help? That's a good question, James. You know, one thing that comes to mind, I think, like we talked about in the earlier part of the conversation, creating a safe space and asking open-ended questions, I would definitely avoid, uh, you know, missing that opportunity to have a real conversation by saying something like, well, you're not feeling suicidal, are you? Or something like that, where it's mm -hmm. closed and you're kind of putting people in that situation where they're not, you know, if they're already struggling and it's hard enough for them to start a conversation and close questions like that uh, or, or those kinds of comments would just, you know, miss that opportunity. And I think also just kind of thinking about this differently, that suicide prevention is not just the responsibility of behavioral health or the healthcare sector. This is a societal issue and, and all of us need to be a part of that. So schools, faith-based communities, you know, we, we need to make sure that everyone is playing a role in this. Uh, absolutely. I, I'm so glad that you brought that up, that it's, it is not, it's on, it's on all of us really, yes. right? Particularly when someone is, is, you know, actively suicidal, which that's even um, different language that I know we're potentially sort of trying to get away from, but say something, but I love that you said, cause it's uncomfortable for, for everyone, right? To sometimes say something and then to go and say, well, you're not suicidal, are you? There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of stigma in that, in that, you know, that approach. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. I did want to uh, just address right before we leave. I'm so sorry. I saw that there's a there is a Facebook question. Has there been an increase in suicides among healthcare workers since the beginning of the pandemic? Um, I, I know I have a little bit of data on that, but it's actually older. It's from the spring, and the short answer is yes. Um, my data is particularly among nurses, um, and it's striking. Um, the, the, the percentage of, of nurses who were in those, that kind of tier one that you talked about before, Dr. Wagre, but just in the last few seconds we have, um, do you have any information or data about that for a question? It, it is interesting. So depression, anxiety, deaths by drug overdose have, have clearly increased. Uh, the data for deaths by suicide is lagging. There was one study across 21 countries uh, that had some data that actually showed that um, we did not have uh, a significant increase, but it's still early, uh, and so you know one would be concerned about it. But we didn't. We didn't. And, and a part of what people were using to explain was sometimes in the context of natural disasters and, and events like this, the community comes together uh, in a very different way, and, and maybe there's a protective component. But I think it's it's just a little too early to have all the answers on this because some of this data lags, and we see things later down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you for letting me put you on the spot with, you know, 10 seconds to go. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, uh, Dr. Wagre, Josh Cutler, thank you so much for um, for doing this and having these these conversations discussing suicide is is difficult, but doesn't have to be. And, and I'm so glad that Providence is allowing us to do this to try to continue to normalize these conversations among everyone. Um, and I am biased, but for, particularly for the other healthcare providers out there that a lot of us are really struggling. Um, so thank you. And Josh, in particular, thank you so much for sharing your story and for being vulnerable. Um, that's that's real. And and I, I guarantee you that you touched people with that. I know you did me as well, just for, for sharing your story. So thank you.
Um, as you'll see it scrolling across the bottom, those folks still watching, if you're looking for a behavioral health specialist in your area, of course, please go to providence.org. Always, I will say it one more time, 1-800-273-TALK. If you need help or if you need help helping someone, I always think that that's really important. And the crisis text line as well, text home to 741-741. Thank you both um, for joining us. And of course, make sure you follow us on social media at Providence Health System on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and under Providence on Twitter. And they, they want me to say something about following me, but it's fine. You don't have to do that. Just follow <laughs> Providence, sorry. <laughs> Thank you uh, both very much. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Hope you have a great rest of your Monday. Thank you. Thank you.